G'day legends, just a quick note before we get into this episode. I really hope you're enjoying the podcast, and if you are, I reckon you'll love my vlog over on YouTube, Skulls Weekly. After almost 300 episodes of my daily vlog, Skulls Stories, we wanted to continue to make it interesting and add value to you guys as cricket lovers and cricketers, cricket coaches, and so we've changed it up. We're making it a much higher quality production. We're trying to give as much value as we can. And we've made it a weekly vlog, Skulls Weekly. We've had some excellent feedback so far. So guys, head over to YouTube, search Cricket Mentoring. Please subscribe, like, share, comment, etc. And check out my new vlog, Skulls Weekly. Welcome to the Cricket Mentoring Podcast. I'm Tom Scolle, or Skulls as I get called. And this podcast has been designed for cricketers and cricket lovers who want to learn and improve themselves. In this podcast, we interview past, current and future cricket stars to find out more about their journey and what makes them successful, while also sharing some audio from ourselves at Cricket Mentoring. Our goal is to help you become your best on and off the field, so I hope you enjoy this podcast and get something valuable out of it. G'day legends. Today's guest was one of the best batters in Australian domestic cricket and county cricket over the past 10 years. Michael Klinger scored almost 25,000 runs in professional cricket for three different states and Gloucestershire County Cricket Club in the UK. When he retired, he was the leading run scorer in Big Bash history and one of the most dominant and consistent batters in domestic 2020 cricket in Australia and the UK. However, he wasn't always an excellent or even a good T20 batter and when he was younger, his game certainly wasn't set up for that. Through some thoughtful planning around understanding his strengths and assessing the risks involved with certain shots, he evolved himself and his game into someone who dominated all three formats of the game. Despite his phenomenal numbers in the back half of his career, Klinger managed just three international matches for Australia, and in this episode, he shares the reason why he thinks that was the case. We also spoke about how he managed his game between Australia and the UK and the different challenges that he faced. Having transitioned from playing to professional coaching last year, it was fascinating to hear how Klinger now views the game as a coach and what he looks for technically in batters as a result of what he found out about his own game late in his career. There's so much value in this episode, guys, so let's get into it. G'day, legends, and welcome to this episode of the Cricket Mentoring Podcast. I'm here with a very special guest, Michael Klinger. Maxie, thanks for joining me. No worries. Thanks for having me. Guys, those of you that might not know Michael's career, he's a very, very experienced cricketer who's now turned into a uh, a coach, a very fresh coach, but 182 first-class matches, over 11,000 first-class runs, 30 first-class hundreds, 177 list-day matches, 1,800s, at an average tick under 50, 206 2020s, um, almost 6,000 runs at an average, um, a tick under 35, and eight 2020 hundreds, and then three 2020 internationals with a high score of 62. They're pretty impressive numbers, mate. Well, congratulations Thanks, on everything you've achieved. Thank you. And you held the record for the most runs in the Big Bash when you retired, which is pretty soon, sort of since then, has been overtaken, but another wonderful achievement. Now, Jeez. let's go back to where it all started, back to the beginning. Yeah. What's your earliest memory of playing cricket? Probably the earliest memory was a, as a three-year-old. Uh, my older brother was seven years older than me playing junior cricket. He was playing under 12s. And I just remember walking around the boundary with a, a cricket bat and a, a ball in my hand and just hitting it and then chasing it, hitting it again. Uh, so it started like that, watching my brother uh, play. Yep. And then, yeah, from there playing in the backyard. And um, our backyard originally had it was pretty rough. And my dad ended up making a synthetic pitch for us to play on. Not full length, obviously, but... Uh, yeah, so they're the earliest memories I've had going yeah, back a, a long way now. And was it all the normal rules of electric wiki and one hand, one bounce and all those things? Did you have anything special in the garden that made you play a certain shot? Yeah, we had the um, the wall was right next to leg side shot. So if you hit a pull shot off, off your pads, it comes straight back at you. So you had to make sure you hit it a fair way in front of square, which probably helped me play a bit straighter, yeah. which was good. But yeah, um, yeah we had a, a gate sort of probably in line with third slip, third, fourth slip. So anything that you nicked between your, where you're batting and the gate was out. So yeah. probably had more than automatic wickets, probably automatic three slips pretty yeah. much. Yeah, <laughs> nice, nice. And then from the backyard, what was, what's, your early, what's your memory of your first ever competitive match? First ever competitive match, I was eight years old playing under 12s. I remember it clearly. We played opposite the, um, at Faulkner Park, opposite Alfred Hospital. And 
I opened the, I got asked to open the batting. It was a 25 overs per side, and I finished on eight not out in 25 overs. <laughs> <laughs> I was that small, I couldn't hit the ball past 20 You obviously metres, valued but, uh, your wicket. Yeah, I valued my wicket, so... Um, I don't know if the other kids were that happy with me scoring so slow, but that's just the way it happened. It wasn't because I wasn't trying, I think. Yeah, um, yeah the other guys must have got runs behind me, uh, around me. I don't know what the actual score was, yeah. but yeah. And then at what age did you start to take cricket quite seriously? What age did you think, I love this, I want to practice hard? Maybe not just yet think, I want to play professionally one day, but what age did you really start to get into it? Probably 11, 12. There was a... Uh, there's competitions when I was growing up. It's probably all changed now, but the, like, the under-12 competition was called Mitchell Shield, which was like a, a regional um, competition. So if you play for your club, you get picked to go represent your, your region. Uh, and then under-14s was it was called Hatch, and then under-16s, Dowling Shield, which was like the premier cricket uh, under-16 comp. So probably the earliest was 11 when I first made that Mitchell Sh- Shields um, team. And then uh, then started taking a bit more... I, I played a lot of sports as well. I played tennis, I played AFL... So I enjoyed other sports up until probably 14, 15, when that's when I started to take cricket a bit more seriously. When I got, um, I was lucky enough when I was 15 to, to get put in the first grade uh, side at Paran where I was playing at the time, and so it all started from there. Wow, well, it's young to be playing first grade. <laughs> um, what's your view on kids these days playing multi-sports? There's, there's some research and science that says it's good. Yeah. Some people who get to the absolute elite, Serena Williams comes to mind, um, have focused on one thing from a young age. Where do you sit on that? Yeah, I think the more sports, the better. I've got young kids now. I've got a son who's nine, daughter seven, youngest one who's three. He's obviously too young, but I just encourage them to play as many sports as they like and, 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 and for everyone out there. I think Certainly, I think there's um, some crossover there. I think playing in, in team sports in particular, I think, is really important. But um, to get a whole range of skills from hand-eye coordination to, to foot skills, if you're playing football or soccer or or basketball, I think it's only going to help um, uh, the kids as an athlete, the boys and girls as an athlete as well. Mm. So, And there's no need to take it seriously, I don't think, until you get to an older age. And it's hard for me to pinpoint where that age is now because yeah. I, I haven't been growing up in, in this sort of period. But, yeah, yeah certainly going um, playing different sports, I reckon, is a huge advantage. Yeah, absolutely. So to have got into the Paran first grade side or squad at 15, you must have really been practicing and developed your game a lot up until that point what was it like for you as a 13 and 14 year old were you practicing every day or was it still a couple of days a week and and how did that period look for you yeah so when I was 13 I went from my junior club to Paran uh, to play senior cricket and they started me in the force which was so I basically started from the force and, and worked my way up over a two year period to the first through performances so and was that was that you went to Paran as a scene to play senior cricket because you just loved it or was your father sort of saying come on play senior cricket or was it just all off your own back no I, I loved it and I never I didn't know what age was right if anything my fa- my dad was like a little bit hesitant to let me go play seniors too early yeah uh, but um, he spoke to the, the guys at Paran Cricket Club and and they encouraged me to come and try out, and they had a, a, a couple of good senior guys there. So um, went there, and as I said, over a couple of years, started, played thirds and seconds, and eventually got my, my way up. So um, And was lucky enough, I think it was second last game of one season, to play as a 15-year-old in the first. But it, it's quite funny, because that season, um, there was a under-17 championship, so I got picked in that when sort of the, the two years below the top. And uh, I remember I had a shocker. It was in... Uh, it was in Victoria and Geelong, the games, and uh, I came out of that really despondent. It's a good message to, to all the boys and girls as well because I, I think I scored, you know, in five or six games, maybe 40 runs, and, and that was it. And then came back, played in the seconds for Paran, got a couple of runs, and all of a sudden, four or five weeks later, I got a game in the first and, and did all right. I got 30 not out and then got 100 in my second game, the last game of the season. So... Um, from having a really shocking under-17s carnival from, from my perspective mm. to four weeks later doing that. So it just shows that um, you can, if you, if you go through a bad period, it doesn't take much to get out rather than yeah. a bit of hard work and a, a bit of luck to get an opportunity somewhere. Yeah, it's such a fickle game and you, you're only as good as your next innings. And if you've had a bad drop, you're, yeah, you're only one innings away. And I listened to a great podcast with Kobe Bryant recently and he spoke yeah. about... He was 11 and went to a, a tournament in LA and, and he didn't score a single point. And he yeah. went away from that and said, right, I'm going to work really hard. And two years later, he was the best player in the, in the state. And it, yeah. it does just come down to hard work and a bit of belief and, and a bit of luck, like you say. Yeah. I'm a big believer as well. Like, 
people talk about being in and out of form and I just reckon a lot of it's got to do with attitude. Like you can be, you can have five, you know, bad innings in a row, but if you keep bringing the best attitude to every single game, and you've got you know you've done it well before that, so you know you're good enough. You're gonna you're gonna come good. Mm-hmm. But the issue is when guys I think go through bad periods and then they start to want to change things and, mm-hmm. and rather than knowing you know what this has worked for me in the past, mm-hmm. let's just bring a good attitude to every game and it's going to turn. So. Um, I think sometimes people overemphasize um, being in bad form. Not only players, but sometimes their coaches mm. as well. And do you think that it goes to training and how you practice as well, bringing a good attitude to that? Like you say, not trying to search for answers, but sticking to what works for you. Definitely. But as a as a younger player growing up, the hardest thing is to find what works for you. And I found that like I only started performing at state level consistently at, when I was 27, when I moved to South Australia from, from Victoria. Before that, I, I played some good innings and, and, and got some runs, but I never had, you know, two or three like really good seasons in a row. So I think, yeah, certainly having, um, finding what works for you is, is the hardest part because, um, and but then once you do that and you've had um, sustained success doing that, is not to certainly tinker with your game a little bit um, as you have to to evolve, but... Uh, certainly not make huge changes because just because you made two or th- had two or three bad innings mm. in a row or, or had two or three games where you, you didn't get wickets or mm. if you're a bowler. I listened to a great podcast yesterday. I was driving around Melbourne and um, it was Mark Howard interviewing Mike Hussey and Huss yeah. spoke about um, how, whatever, I'm not sure what age he was, but he started to, whenever he had a good day, he'd write down everything he could about that day, how he felt, what he thought, what he ate, blah, blah, blah. And he'd put that in a drawer. And then, then a month later, he'd have another good day and he'd write everything down. And then over time, he had a bit of a blueprint yeah. into what his what it, he'd do when he had a success. And I yeah. think that's a really good lesson. I, th- I sort of encourage the athletes I look after and work with to try and, once they have a good day, they've got a recipe there to try and unpack and, and work out what it is because that's how they can know what their best is, isn't it? Yeah, when, you, when you're trying to find your way and work that out, that's a great way to do it and Mike Hussey's a legend of the game, so if he's doing it at work, then yeah. it's certainly something for, for the boys and girls to, to, to try because it can't hurt. No, it takes absolutely up, not. It takes a couple of minutes of your time, and yeah. um, if it's going to help your game 10 15%, then, then why not um, yeah. going forward? Yeah. Let's take a quick break from the podcast for a minute to thank our sponsors, Grove Cricket. Grove is the best gear in the business, and we absolutely love using it. Guys, if you're interested in some Grow Cricket gear, then send us a message on Instagram. Let us know what you're after and we can help you become a user of Grove. And in doing so, you can support what we're doing here at Cricket Mentoring. It is awesome gear and I'm sure you'll love it as much as we do. Now let's get back to this episode. Um, so moving forward, you've made uh, 30 not out in 100 in your, your second first grade game. Season yep. ends. You're still 15 years old. Were you incredibly motivated and thought, wow, I can really do this. Is that when you started to think, I can I can play at a higher level, I can maybe play shield cricket in Australia? When did you start really getting the bit between the teeth and thinking, I want to play at the highest level? It's probably after that, and because what happened after that was I got asked to go in the under-19 squad, which was called the Victorian Institute of Sports. So I was run by the Institute back then. There was a coach called Neil Buzzard um, who ran that, and... He invited me to come to the fitness testing. You had to do back then. It was beat tests, and I think it was a week after or two weeks after that last uh, club game. And got from that, got asked to join the winter squad training, and, and then played under nineteens for the next three years from there. So um, once I started, once I got invited to that squad, it's when I probably gave up footy AFL uh, when I was about fifteen and, and started to concentrate a bit more on on. On my cricket, that involved also um, that VIS program was a lot of fitness based as well. So it was my first introduction to being more professional and, and having a weights program, which I never had before, and um, and keeping myself fit as well as obviously uh, the the cricket side of it. So um, that was when I started taking it a bit more seriously. How much throughout your career has your um, importance on fitness? How much has it been? How important has fitness been to you throughout your career? I suppose. Yeah, for me, it's. It's one of the most important things that I've trained on throughout because um, I certainly f- felt the difference when I was playing, when I, was, I felt fitter. Uh, and, but also, more importantly, I think in the, probably the second half of my career, uh, when you have to start playing all formats, I went over to England for seven years and had to play uh, three formats of the game. I was playing 12 months of the year. So 
really important to keep yourself physically fit and strong uh, to be able to maintain that. And a lot of it was to do with not getting injured, not so much about, you know, making sure you're looking big and strong. It's yeah. just making sure you're, you're fit enough and not getting injured. And, and I thought it helped me in particular playing long innings. So uh, in four-day cricket, being able to bat for a day and a bit. Yeah. In T20 cricket, when you're on the go all the time, um, one of the reasons I, I, I think I got um, quite a few T20 hundreds was because from overs 15 to 20, I was fit enough that I could still concentrate well and I could execute my shots, whereas yeah. often when the guys who aren't as fit, you know, you lose concentration or you, you lose focus as yeah. well. It's not only the actual physical part of it. Yeah. So for me, that was a, a big um, a big part of my game. It's yeah. something I sort of I worked really hard at until I retired, yeah, probably six months ago. Yeah, it's something that we try and sort of preach or encourage our athletes because I feel like in this day and age, kids are less active. They're, they're yeah. more sort of on devices and... And so the natural sort of movement that we, we probably did as kids where you're outside kicking and running and jumping yeah. and stuff like that doesn't happen as much. And I think fitness is something that in this generation is sort of probably lost a bit. But um, moving on, so throughout that period and throughout your life, who, who has, have you had mentors and who's been influential for you? Yeah, um, there's a, I've had, had a private coach since I was quite young. His uh, name's Joey Silver and I still speak to him, you know, weekly now and um, obviously not as much about cricket because I'm not playing, but um, but he was someone who I worked with a lot in, in, in the indoor centres uh, during the winters. Uh, that Neil Buzzard, who was the under-19 VIS coach, for me, he was brilliant. He gave me every opportunity to, um, to get the best out of my ability from a uh, training point of view, asking me to come to the VIS when I was only 15, which was unheard of really at that time, um, giving me access to those facilities, winter training, and I think he just excelled um, or sped up my, uh, I suppose, my skill work uh, and also fitness program getting into um, those underage competitions, the under-19s and, and that. So he was, he, was, he was great for me. And then obviously I've had guys coming through uh, different. I've had a lot of coaches. I've played for, for three states and uh, played in England. And probably the, I know he's the Australian coach now, but Justin Langer, who was my coach at the back end, I think I've learned a lot from him, the way he went about it. We're, we're quite different characters, but um, just the way, more about his one-on-one -on -one stuff with the players. And when he asked me to come over, the thing that stood out to me was he, he just took all the pressure off straight away. I was on a phone call. I was in the UK at the time. And he just said to me, I want you to come over. We've only really got one or two senior players. It was Adam Voges and uh, Michael Hogan at the time. And just want you to be a, a good senior player, good um, to all the other guys in the team, help develop them coming through. And I don't really care if you get runs. So all of a sudden, he just took pressure off. And it's probably um, no surprise I came over my first couple of years and, and scored you know, a thousand runs per shit and, shit and started and played well mm. because. He and I don't know if he did. Yeah, I don't know. To this day, I haven't actually asked me if he did that deliberately uh, or if um, he actually just really didn't care if I, yeah, I was yeah, going to get runs yeah. or not. But whatever it was, it worked because yeah. he took the pressure off and I, and I was able to come in and, and relax and. And yes, develop the young guys, but also perform okay myself. Yeah, what a great message, and and we'll get on to your coaching sort of shortly. But transitioning from so you're in the grade system, you're in the VIS, you're playing under 90s. Transitioning from that junior rep cricket and grade cricket, how did you then break into the Victorian first class team? Yes, probably the hardest thing for me during that period was coming back and making runs uh, in club cricket. So I, I didn't get a lot of runs in first grade cricket till. Um, probably from the age of 16 to 19. I'd play the odd decent innings, but uh, the club saw me as a, as a, I suppose, a project-type player who was going to come through, so they kept giving me opportunities and they could have easily dropped me to the seconds. And I think once I... Um, the way I actually got into the first-class career was through the Cricket Academy. So back then it was based in Adelaide and, and from October till uh, Christmas time, you'd play in the second eleven competition. So exactly the same as playing second eleven for WA or Victoria. So we played all the state second eleven teams, and I scored quite a lot of runs in those three months. So it was, it's, again, we weren't playing for Victoria second eleven; I was for the cricket academy. But you're playing against all the other states, so we um, making runs in that pretty much got me picked in the Victorian squad, um, which I was twelfth man for originally, and eventually post the Christmas break uh, got into the side for my debut against New South Wales. Awesome, awesome. Yeah. And was there a cap presentation and you, you made your debut against New South Wales, you say, who, did, was there any sort of fanfare around it or was it just like, you picked mate, let's go? 
Yeah, back then there wasn't a, a cap presentation. It was obviously a, a you know this team discussion. Well done on your debut and, and all that, but it wasn't much as like now they do a full on presentation. But I remember it clearly. I actually came in late. Um, Laurie Harper, who was a left hand batter, uh, he was in the warm up. So I'll win the warm up. Think I'm not going to play. Pulled up. He had a bad back. He um, that went on him quite often and. Pulled up saw early in the warm-up and um, Paul Rifle, who was a captain at the time, came up to me and said, you're in. So my family didn't really know about it. They weren't, they weren't over there. They thought I wasn't going to play. So it all happened really quickly. Uh, it was a good... We won the game. We played against a good attacker, Stuart Clark, uh, Stuart McGill, Shane, Shane Lee uh, back then. So it was uh, Michael Slater was playing for them. So it was certainly a, um, a great experience and we won the game. So uh, to, to have that, you know, really positive experience first up was excellent and what was what was the difference you found then and obviously you played a lot you've gone back and played a bit of grade cricket but a lot of first class cricket what was the difference between first grade and first class cricket oh huge huge difference I think I think if I didn't play in that second 11 comp um, in that leading into that those three months leading into it I don't think it would have been ready that second level comp was strong so we actually um, we played against a, a lot of good players who went on to play a lot of um Shield cricket, so guys at that time were, who were still quite young, Ashley Nofke, and uh, I remember playing a game against Queensland. Where I think Kasparitz was playing because he was coming back from an injury uh, in New South Wales. Had Stuart Clark playing, and then played against him a couple of months later in, in the New South Wales team. So uh, we used to play against some really strong players back then, who, who eventually had long careers post that. So there was definitely there's definitely a gap there. But that period of playing in that second eleven competition really helped me be ready for that. Yeah. And now moving forward, you mentioned how you went to South Australia and that's where you really found your consistency. Um, how did that come about? Did, did you lose your contract to Victoria or were you sort of seeking a, a different environment, something new? How did that transition happen? Yeah, so I was still under contract. I was one year into a two-year contract and um, it coincided actually with uh, Chris Rogers coming to Victoria. So I was looking for more opportunities to play and I think Cree Victoria at the same time had discussions with uh, Chris to come over. So it sort of worked out well being top water batters. He came in. I, I went out to South Australia who um, had a pretty poor sort of couple of years before that and they were looking to, to start fresh. And um, so they were keen for me to come over. I spoke to Craig Victoria. And it was actually a, a mutual decision that it was better, best for both parties. And um, it was a, that's when my career took off, really. I was 27 at the time and... My first game of that season was against Victoria, Sheffield Shield game, and, and got 150 in the first inning. So from there, I just I probably started to believe mm. um, myself that I could do it. Before that, I probably had a few doubts. I'd made some runs with Victoria, had some, you know, maybe two consistent seasons, but that was it. And then I was in and out a lot, depending on guys like Cameron White, Dave Hussey, Brad Hodge, whether they were playing for Australia. So even if I'd get run, sometimes I'd be forced out. Yeah. But rightly so, because there was no one else who could... The other batters in the team were guys like Matthew Elliott, um, Ian Harvey was playing, uh, Jason Armberg was a good opening batter for Victoria, so there wasn't really anyone else to leave out. So I understood that it was frustrating at the same time, mm. so that opportunity was um, one I couldn't say no to. So do you think it was that you got the 150 in the first game, do you think it was just that you you were just in good form, or was it just that the change of environment really sort of gave you a new spark, you wanted to prove things to your, your new teammates, etc., or was it just coincided that that's when things started to click? I think it was the attitude thing which I was talking before because we had about five you know, scratch matches between intra-squad games leading into it and I literally didn't make over 10 in any of them and they were probably thinking, who's this guy we recruited? Because uh, they, they sort of said to me, listen, why don't you come over bat three for us? So I came over expecting to bat three but literally didn't make a run so I didn't know if they were going to pick me that first game and... Luckily, and, and this is where things can be so fickle, luckily they picked me. If they didn't pick me, who knows what my career where it would have gone. Yeah. They stuck with me, um, even after poor form. I think I came into that game with a really good attitude, probably wanting to prove Victoria wrong as well. Yeah. Not that they got, got rid of me, but yeah. just wanted to prove a point. Well, you've lost, yeah. It was a really good attack. We played against uh, back Shane Harwood, Dirk Nanners, Clint Mackay. Um, so some guys who, uh, who had really good careers for Victoria. So... Um, I think Darren Pattinson as well. Uh, so James's older brother. So it was played a for England. Played for England, yeah. Played one game for England, yeah. So it was a. That's where it started, and that year was was a, I suppose my breakout year in 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 four day and one day cricket, and was lucky to to move on and, and have a, a good 
what sort of 10, 11 years after that. Mm, yeah. And like you say, it can be so fickle and sometimes your fate is in other, or often your fate is in other people's hands and yeah. sometimes you need things just to go your way a little bit. Um, Let's take a break from this episode for a minute and go back to last week's episode with England fast bowler, Kate Cross. So what did you do in that time you weren't playing? Did you have to do a lot of soul searching? Did you go and work your absolute backside off? Did you just take a, a genuine break, didn't do anything in cricket for a little while? What did that time look like? Um, so the build-up to that was a probably a full year of um, kind of like repressing a lot of anxiety, which then led to a lot of low mood, a lot of like depression symptoms. So I was really struggling with my mental health. All based around cricket? All based um, around performance and, and the mostly, pressure? Yeah, mostly cricket because um, we turned professional at this point and um, I really struggled with that time because my hobby and that love for the game that I had for a kid became my job and I was getting paid for it and you know, if you're not getting the results then you're not good enough. That kind of you, you build stories up in your head, don't you? And you make it so much, you catastrophize everything. Um, but I think then when it all kind of got to the point, I didn't know any of this was going on. I knew that I was struggling with low mood and lack of motivation, which is obviously a shambles when you're a professional a sports person because you've got to be out being fit. And I was really struggling with that side of it. Um, but I think that kind of all built up and I just exploded, basically. Um, and that was when I had to get away from everyone. I couldn't even sit in the same room as the England girls. I, I went down to a training camp that we had at Loughborough and I couldn't, I, I hid in the physio room. I couldn't let anyone see me. Now let's get into this episode. You ended up captaining South Australia. Yeah. How how did it come about that you, you told me about the call, you told us about the call from JL, but how did it come about that you then left South Australia and, and came to your third state, went, came over to Western Australia, obviously where I'm from. Yeah. Um, what What happened there? So I had six really good years in South Australia um, in terms of enjoying my cricket, um, performed well sort of most majority of the time. Uh, loved captaining South Australia for a couple of years. We won, they hadn't won a title in 20 years before that and we won the 2020 title with the Redbacks which we went to the Champions League and won a one day title which was an unbelievable game. Um, we had to defend, I think, five runs on the last over and a guy, Gary Putland. Is that Putland? Yeah, yeah, I remember that game. Yeah, so that game. was, uh, Rick Ponding was batting and George Bailey, they were both, one was 100 not out, one was 80 not out, so you think they were going to cruise home and, and somehow we uh, we got Bailey out early in the over and then um, Jimmy Faulkner, who's ended up being a fantastic finisher post that, just um, couldn't get him away that in the last over, so... Um, yeah, so it was a, I had a fantastic time there. What, what happened in the back end, uh, we had a coach, uh, Darren Berry, who'd come in for a few years, and he um, had a meeting at the end of this, as you do an exit meeting at the end of each season. I also, had, again, had another year on my contract like I had in Victoria. Um, had a pretty good shield season. I scored a double uh, 100 in the second last game of the season, so thinking um, things are pretty bright for the future. and. He mentioned in our exit meeting that they were looking to probably not play me uh, in four-day cricket. They want to build some young guys coming through, but you still first picked in, you know, in, in T20 and, and one-day cricket. Um, so I was a bit disappointed with that, but at the same time, I, I left the meeting, left to England uh, like four or five days later to go play county cricket for Gloucestershire and just thought I'll, I'll have a good season, winter there, come back. Back then, the one-day tournament was just in October, so I thought come perform well in October and then force my way, make them almost impossible for them not to pick me in the Shield team. Yeah. Uh, and that's the way I left and it was all fine. And then um, out of the blue, a couple of weeks later, I got a call from uh, Justin Langer and he mentioned what I talked about before and in terms of um, we'd love to have you over. We just, uh, Mark, sorry, Marcus North retired a bit unexpectedly, had a great yeah. season that year yeah. and he decided to retire. So they were trying to um, build up some experience in the group to to help Vogsy out and as I said Michael Hogan was a, the quick bowler who was, had a bit of experience the rest of the guys were all really between 18 and 22 who had now become established players for WA so he just said to me listen we'd love to come over no as I said before no pressure on making runs just be good around the group and went back um, I was actually at uh, the Gloucestershire season launch when it happened so I went back Spoke to my wife afterwards, and within I think two days we decided to go. Uh, they gave an official contract. Once I spoke to South Australia, who um, understood, and yeah, so it all happened really quickly. We had to, we still had a house in Adelaide, which we were renting, so we had to 
get um, both our parents to go over and pack it up for us because we were over in the UK, wow, yeah. uh, break our lease. So it was always all happening for a couple of months yeah. and then um, it all, yeah, and then my time in Perth, I can't speak any more highly of. It was really hard to for the family to move back six months ago to Melbourne. Uh, obviously, Melbourne, all our family's based, both our set of um, you know, brothers, sisters, parents and um, uh, for our young kids, uh, a lot of cousins and that sort of stuff. So that was the main reason we came back, but we really enjoyed the lifestyle there. I think if I would have found um, the right job sort of straight out of cricket, we would have stayed in yeah. Perth. Yeah. Um, but in sport, for what I was wanting to do, whether it's coaching or the management side of sport, there's probably a few more opportunities in Melbourne. That's yeah. another reason we decided to come back. And it's, it's fascinating, again, that the timing was probably right. If, if Darren Berry had have said, you're the first picked, we, we want you, want you, and you're still the captain, etc., yeah. You may not have even sort of thought about JL's oh, conversation. Oh, yeah. Um, so Johan Botha was captain those last couple of years, and which, which, which was fine. But, um, yeah, I think, I think if that exit interview would have been a bit different, um, I, probably, yeah, I probably wouldn't have even thought about leaving. And mm. then um, when JL called me, I probably would have just said, no, I'm quite happy, happy yeah. there. Yeah. yeah, like moving another sort of you yeah. know, two or three hours away from where all our families as well. So, but they, um, which we... We probably didn't realise at the time how much, how good Perth lifestyle mm. is. Uh, mm. For our kids, every weekend was a holiday for them. They go to the best beaches in the world, uh, five, ten minutes from where we were we were living. Yeah. So every Saturday, Sunday, when I'm not playing cricket, you take them to the beach. It's like other kids around Australia get that maybe once a year if they go for a two week holiday. So yeah. um, and we still miss that lifestyle. Yeah. So it's, yeah. it's uh, a bit different. In yeah, a bit different, but. Um, there's other advantages to Melbourne as well. Of but yeah, we certainly um, we, we, we'll never rule out moving back to there one day, that's for sure. Yeah. Now, um, when you were growing up, there wasn't much 2020 cricket. Yeah. You became one of the best 2020 players in the world. How did you evolve your game throughout that the, the period where 2020 started to kick off and to become one of the, the, the great 2020 batters? Yeah, my, my natural game wasn't um, conducive for T20 cricket, so I had to work really hard at it. Um, I knew I could. Uh, I knew I had the skills to do it, but I had to work out, you know, where my um, when I take risks, how do I make it come off more often than not? So what I tried to do was upskill um, the shots that I know that I, I was good at, and that I know that you know if you play them nine out, of, they'll come off nine out of ten rather than five out of ten. So um, that was my first thing I tried to do, and then I tried to develop the other areas of my game that I wasn't as good at. And you can never develop everything. Well, I couldn't anyway to be the perfect player. But I tried over a period of time and even up until I finished six months ago. Like I learned my last season in the UK in the T20 Blast, I was still learning. Um, I had a bad first half of the year and half of the season and I tweaked a few things and then came good. So, um, What did you tweak? Can you give us some information? Yeah, I didn't actually see it happening, but that batting coach uh, pointed out to me that my bat was going a bit behind me in my back lift and one of my strengths was cutting and pulling um, and I got out like three innings in a row caught a deep square leg trying to pull and I'm thinking well I thought maybe I'm just getting old and my eyes were going or something like that and he pointed it out to me and I watched the video and you could, you could see that that was literally going back behind me so what that meant instead of taking yeah instead of taking you know just an example half a second to contact the ball it was taking one second so I was late on the ball, getting caught at deep square or, or fine leg, um, which normally I'd either whack him on the ground before or hit him over the top for six. So I literally changed it um, at training. So I, I just tried to stand a little bit lower in my crease and keep my hands in tight with my back you know, facing more to second slip. So, so you were consciously focusing on where your hands were? Um, at training I was, yeah. but not in the game. Yeah. So I didn't want to think about it in the game. So it took me probably two sessions to get it right. So... What I just basically did was shorten my back lift to give less room for error as well. So yeah. shorten my back lift, take it out to like a second slip position. Because I reckon even if I was, um, even if I was thinking doing that, but I kept a, a bigger back lift, naturally or instinctively, I still would have taken it behind me. Yeah. So the main thing for me was to shorten the back lift. And then all of a sudden, because I lost, got out three or four times hooking and pulling, Everyone teams just started buying short, short to yeah. me. And then for the next two games, I was whacking them again. Yeah. So where I was probably in the opening partnership I had with a, a young kid called Miles Hammond, who was a I've done some work with Miles, yeah. naturally talented, unbelievable T20 cricketer. I'm surprised yeah. he didn't get picked up in the 
that hundred ball competition because yeah. he was the one who naturally got us off to good starts, like quick starts. Yeah. And I'd be more support role. Whereas for the next three games, just by by my few changes I made, I was the one who was getting up getting us off to quick starts. Yeah. Just by them bowling short and me nailing him. And then teams had to then change because they saw a lot there's a lot of reviewing, a lot of analytical stuff now where you watch games that guys are batting. So yeah. They had to change, and then they um, had to bowl different areas. So it, it um, by making one small change, um, just opened up my game, and mm. that's that's a, uh, the importance I think of having a, a, a really good coach as well. Who this is, is um, Owen Dawkins was a batting coach, and I didn't do a lot of work with him um, throughout, just because he worked with the second eleven a little bit as well. But he just saw it, and, and it's it's amazing. At, you don't have to overcomplicate batting, but if you can just change something slightly, how big an mm. effect it can have. It's interesting. I, I did a session this morning at Albert Park with a couple of young guys, and one of the young guys there, 15 years old, um, decent little cricketer, he was taking his bat back to fine legs, similar yeah. sort of thing. But yeah. do you think that the, like, the best players all talk about tinkering and trying yes. to find ways to be better? And obviously you'd reviewed, you'd seen something was going on. I think for the young guys, it takes a lot more practice, whereas you're more experienced, you know your body better, you know the game better. Two sessions, you can you can make a pretty significant change. Yeah. Oh, definitely, yeah, it would take longer for guys still developing, but um, it's worth it's worth doing it. If, if, you, if, you're, if you're trusting your coach, with they, which um, guys should be, yeah. and they're advising you to make a change, as long as it's not a, a huge change, depending on, on game, but um, just trust them to make to make that change because the difference it can make can be huge and mm. ever since I made that change all I do now when I watch guys batting is where they're it, uh, is their back lift going behind and I've seen it um, in quite a few batters and all of a sudden you know alright that's what's wrong that's yeah. what's putting and it's only something small that puts them out of whack for yeah. you know uh, half a second but so that's I wasn't, all that makes a difference yeah, so I was missing out on cuts which was my strength as well because again taking longer to hit it and then once your bat's out there, or not even as long as it, your hands are still in tight, it just opens up all areas because you can hit straight, you can then cut again, you can pull it, pull and mm. hook again. So mm. that was a um, one change. And, and if anything, like I got, a, I look back, I didn't have a great big bash season the year, the season before, and no one actually pointed that out to me. Mm. And I look back at some footage, and I was doing that. My bat was going behind me, so. I was sort of a bit annoyed that I didn't see that earlier yeah. because it could have made myself, you know, finish off with a better season with the Scorchers as well. Um, it also made me wonder whether I can keep playing because yeah. I maybe I found that out and I'm, and I'm starting to bat well again. Yeah. But um, it was the right time for me to finish. So um, how, throughout your career, did you ever do much video analysis or video review of your own game? Did you look at things and sort of try and pick it apart or did you just play and trust your, trust your game and your coaches? Yeah, I did um, if things weren't going the way I, I felt it. When, when I felt really good and, and batting well, not so much make, even making runs, just feeling good at the crease, I, I knew that everything was working well. Um, especially if I, could, if I was hitting the ball straight well. For me, that was the main thing. I felt if I'm hitting the ball straight well, it means my weight has to be going through the ball, my head has to be in good position, and then everything else will take care of itself. When I get a cut, I'll hit it. When I get a pull, I'll hit it. So that was for me, that was the main thing. And when I felt that was a bit out of whack, that's when I'd go back and just make sure um, I'd be I'd check a bit of footage. I was I was very big on watching opposition uh, footage before I played them. Like for me, I, I wasn't as naturally talented as and as good a striker as your, you know your Aaron Finches and your, your Glenn Maxwells now. So I had to find an advantage. So for me, I used to watch um, not only opposition bowlers, but I like to watch the full twenty overs of a game. So if I'm coming up against Playing for the Perth Scorchers, for example, coming up against the uh, Melbourne Stars, I used to watch their full twenty overs of bowling because I'd like to know get who, a, bowls, who bowls where. So let's just say, and I'm just making these names up. Let's just say Adam Zampa bowls generally bowls the fourth over of the game, and I feel I can't really get him away. But I know that uh, another guy bowls the fifth over. I know I can probably hold off against Zampa because I can take the fifth over down. Yeah. And I used to like to find patterns about who bowls where, yeah. and then what fields they've got and where you can target. Exactly, um, and just the bowling, the bowler. Like there are some bowlers you just have a bit of an edge on. There's others who have the edge on you. And then also, if I was lucky enough to get you know batting beyond the fifteenth over, I used to always watch the last four overs carefully in what bowlers bowl because you can sometimes this is taking to the 
a further extent, but it actually helped me. So I could find patterns in an over. So let's just say um, Daniel Worrell first Melbourne Stars is bowling the last over of the game. He generally um, he may start with a slower ball first ball, then go Yorkers or. And again, I think the hundreds I made um, over the period of time that helped me a lot because again, it might only work five percent advantage, but if you can predict or know the ball the guy's going to bowl, mm. makes a huge difference. And guys listening um, or watching this, it's this is not for everyone. This is obviously what's really yeah. worked for you. But yeah. in the moment, then, did you recall? Okay, I know he's going to Worrell, slower ball, first ball. I'm going to set up, or did it? Did it just? You had the information in there somewhere and you yeah. just were able to then play subconsciously. Yeah, I think you still got to play reactively and subconsciously, but you know what their tricks are. So it, it's more for the ones where you think, all right, when he goes Yorker, does he go wide Yorker or straight Yorker? The guys that go wide Yorker, you set up full. So if um, Agar, for example, for the strikers this year, he was really good at nailing his wide Yorkers, not as strong as, as nailing at straight Yorkers. So if I was playing next year against him... I'd be setting up for his wide Yorkers when he's bowling, you know, his last over in the ninth or twentieth over, yeah. and then try and access the offside, or yeah. or if you, if you think you can walk across and, and get him somewhere else. But um, and those sort of things can be um, help you so much. It can be a difference between getting your team one hundred sixty and getting a one hundred eighty, or getting yourself a hundred instead of seventy five. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, for me, that was really important because that's the way I, I like to do it. Yeah. But as you said, it's not for everyone. Some yeah. guys like to not watch anything and have no pre- preconceived ideas just react. and just watch and react. And that's probably what you know someone like a Maxi, that Maxwell does and that sort of stuff. Mm. Yeah. Um, so you've spoken a lot about Gloucester. How did you manage your game from playing in Australia, playing first-class cricket and 2020 everything in Australia to then you fly over the other side of the world? The, the conditions are different, the ball's different, the pitches are different. How did you did you change anything tactically? Did you change anything mentally? Did you change anything technically? Yeah, technically, in red ball cricket over there, the only thing I changed was I made sure that um, my hands were always in really tight because what you wanted to do was play straight down the line because the duke ball swing a little bit. What you don't want to do is is move your hands sideways. So for me, it was really important to, and it took me three or four games. So I, I got over. Got asked to come over as a recruiter, a captain um, for Gloucestershire. Made no runs my first three, four day games. You can already hear the rumblings. Who's this guy we got in, an overseas player? And the same coach as I talked about before, uh, who talked about um, my back lift, he mentioned to me that my hands were coming out a little bit, maybe just coming a bit tighter. So did two sessions leading to the next game and got 100 the next, next things I played. And it was a really good lesson for me that over there, for my game, everyone's different again, but for my game, it was important for what I could to keep my hands in really tight because you're going to play and miss the ball up there, but what you want to try and minimise is how many you nick. Mm. So that was important for me to be successful over there for a long period of time. Mm. And then the challenge there is just going from format to format often. And um, I love that because as a batter, you're batting three times a week. For a bowler, it'd be really difficult if you're a fast bowler to play a full season. But I just saw it as a um, great opportunity to get three hits a week, and mm. it probably there's not as much pressure on each innings because you almost oh if, if you fail in one, you know what I'll get another hit in two days or three yeah. days, and yeah. um, and I like that sort of atmosphere and, and, and over there just to yeah. be able to just play and bat, and you don't train a lot mm. uh, just because there's so much cricket, mm. so much playing. Mm. So the one thing is when you are going through a bad trot, it's hard to it's get, hard to get out. Yeah. It was a bit similar in the Big Bash this year because the schedule. They play the same amount of games in two weeks less than last season. So teams were having, I remember speaking to Adam Burgess, who coached the sports, I think he said they had three training sessions the whole Big Bash period. We probably had a, we had a few more periods we had time. We may have had six or seven, for example. Mm. So if you're not informed, it's hard to get out of. Yeah. Uh, and that's, that's very similar to over there. So you just got to, like I mentioned before, try and forget about the technical form and just bring a good attitude and, mm. and turn it around that way. So yeah, that's that's something that I really relate to. And in my time playing a little bit of county cricket, the second eleven in England, um, when you're on, when you're in form, it's the best thing ever because you just bat yeah. the next day and then you bat the next day. When you're out of form, and I had a few periods where I wasn't getting many runs, it was, it was a good thing because you could score it. Like we've spoken about, you got a hit, you can score hundred, you're back in sort of in the runs. But at times you're just like, oh, I just want to need a break. I just yeah. need to get away from it. I just need to get in the nets and practice. And you don't really get that. Yeah. Um, you've mentioned how um, Owen helped you with your hands and your technique on a few different occasions. 
at the highest level, first class cricket and the international cricket, what do you think is the sort of percentage or breakdown of technical and mental? I think if you get to that level, your technical stuff is pretty good. So there's always going to have guys who have a few deficiencies. So I think it'd be 80% mental at that level. There's always some changes you can make. You look at guys batting and um, I think the biggest key when guys get to that level as a coach is to convince them that a change has to be made because um, they've done so well leading into that. But sometimes because they don't get the same scrutiny at the lower levels from the TV and the commentators and, and that, um, they may not be picked up, some of this, some of their technical deficiencies. Mm. But it's a real hard balance because they've got to that level with what they had. Mm. Do they just keep sticking with it, with it? or um, someone like Pete Hanson, a good example, he got to that level by the way he played, had succeeded at that level, got a couple of you know, test hundreds, um, and then had a couple of bad dismissals, and everyone's saying his technique's out of whack. So... He needs to decide himself with whoever his mentor is or coaching mentor, um, all right, is it good enough and mm. just stick with it or do mm. I have to make a couple of changes? Yeah. And, and that's the, probably the biggest trick at that level is to how much technical change you want to make if things aren't quite working mm. or do you stick with what, what's worked with you? But um, my, my feel is probably about 80% mental mm. and, and 20% technical. Once you've got your technique to a certain level. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Just want to pause for a minute there, guys, to let you know about our email newsletter. If you haven't subscribed to our email newsletter, you're missing out on loads of value to help you both on and off the field. Every Monday, I send out a Monday motivation email where I share my favorite article, video, podcast of the week, plus a little bit about what I'm up to and what I'm learning. I'm always trying to give value and help you guys become your best. So head over to cricketmentoring.com forward slash newsletter dash subscription and sign up now so you can get value into your inbox every week. Now let's get back into this episode. Um, with your own game, yeah. um, you, you've made many, many hundreds. You've you're batted for long periods. How did you switch on and off in between balls? What was your in-between moments like and your pre-ball routine? Did you say anything as the ball was running in? What, what did you do? Yeah, I didn't say anything. I had the same... Um uh, I suppose fidgety routine, so not as much as like a Steve Smith, but you know, I, I put my right foot down first. I I'd like just pull my left and right glove up, um, tap the bat on the ground, and then I used to have it my my bat up a little bit, um, and then just focus pretty much as the guys as the bowler started running in, then I'd start to really focus. So in between balls, I'd, I'd go for a bit of a walk and um, you know towards square leg or. Just try and chill, look what's happening around the ground, um, chat to my partner. I'll try to just switch off completely for about 20 seconds because it's impossible if you want to bat for six, for six hours, which every batter wants to do, uh, ideally, is to concentrate for the full six hours is impossible. So mm-hmm. um, if, you, if you break it down, you pretty much only concentrate, you know, 15 seconds each, 10 to 15 seconds each ball and switch off in between. And for me, that really helped, uh, I think, again, play be able to bat for long periods of time mm. and probably the the times when you're a bit out of form and you're trying to search you're maybe thinking too much in between those balls rather mm. than when things are going well and you can relax so yeah it's really important to when not to i think when as a player when things aren't going well and now i've, I've had experience as a, as a coach when things aren't going well you it's almost you don't want to overanalyze. Yeah. If anything, I think it's sometimes good to go the other way. Yeah. Um, yes, certainly look at things and if there's any tweaks you can make. But if you start overanalyzing, I think you can spiral um, mm. the wrong way. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, what drives you now? What drives you now as a as a coach and as a person? And what drove you as a player? What sort of got you out of bed? And what was was it trying to play for Australia? Was it trying to be the best you could be? What was driving you then and now? Uh, as a player. It was two, two things. One, yes, I wanted to play for Australia. I was lucky enough to play a few T20 games. Uh, I think if I would have performed as well as I, as I had from 27 onwards when I was 20, I would have played a lot more career for Australia. But uh, it was probably my own fault for not um, working things out and playing as well, playing well enough early. Uh, but that was certainly a drive to, to keep doing that. And Every team I was in, it was to have success with that team. 
um, I, I really enjoyed the camaraderie in, in each group that I was playing in, and to yeah to have success as a team uh, in winning titles. So mm. when you wake up in the morning, you go you you, you know you're, you're doing fitness at six thirty a.m. and cold mornings and that sort of stuff. When you if you have an end goal to it, this is what I'm trying to get to. It makes it a lot easier. Mm, absolutely. And you've mentioned playing for Australia. You, you played three twenty twenties, which yeah. is an amazing achievement, and you did well. Um, how do you feel now about your career and the fact that you didn't get opportunities when maybe you were knocking the door down? If you had been younger, you probably would have played given yeah. the numbers you were putting on the board. Yeah. Are you at peace with it or are you still, is there still sort of some frustrations there? Or Yeah, no, I'm at peace with it. I, I, there's no doubt I, I would have loved to have played more. Um, and I think I did enough at times to get opportunities. But it, 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 it's the end, it's a judgment call. So it's very hard to say, all right, if they picked, um, again, Say just an example, you know, Sean Marshall, Kawaja, or you know, Phil Hughes when he was um, he was playing really well before he passed away. If he if they picked them before me, which it's a, it's a fair judgment call because they're great players mm-hmm. all in their own right. So um, there were times where yeah, I was certainly in the mix and they could have easily gone with me, but they decided to go a different way. So um, I think if I didn't get those opportunities for Australia in the twenty twenties, I would have had a bit of an empty feeling in mm-hmm. my career, but. Just to, to get an opportunity to perform well, know in my own, I suppose, my own self that I got that opportunity and perform well and I can perform at that level, that probably left me with a bit of peace, I think, at the end of my career. Yeah, I remember yeah. speaking to Buck Rogers about it when he played one test and he was doing really well and he hadn't, before he had his second sort of phase of his career and he said the same thing. He, there's just that doubt, am I good enough? And it's just nice to sort of end yeah. your career knowing, yeah, I was good enough. Yeah, yeah. Now, moving on to your coaching, we're, we're a bit sort of mindful of time here, but moving on to your coaching, first sort of coaching role this year with the Melbourne Renegades, it didn't start well. Yeah. Um, not sort of losing the first nine games, I think. Yeah. Um, how did you stay positive throughout that period? And how was that as, as a first-time coach? You must have started feeling some pressure there. Oh, no doubt. Um, it certainly didn't go according to plan. I... I I came in to the coach to be head coach there two weeks before the season started. Andrew McDonald moved up to the Australian job, so I didn't have a lot of time to prepare. In saying that, it was things were set up pretty well, um, but we had some challenges. Uh, to give you a bit of a background, our, our overseas two overseas bowlers who were from Pakistan pulled out a week and a half before the tournament. Um, they're both quality T Twenty bowlers, Shinwari, Shinwari and Ashraf. So all of a sudden, we lose eight overs of quality bowling. And then when you're looking for replacements, there's international career going on, there's Bangladesh Premier League going on where guys um, get paid more for four weeks' work rather than coming out to Australia for eight. So there's a few restrictions. So we, we've, we felt we got um, a, some good replacements, but um, one got injured, got, did his hammy a few games in. Richard Gleeson, who's a great performer in the UK, 20 blasts over the last few years, probably didn't perform as well as he and, and we would have liked. And... Um, it put us just behind the eight ball a bit. So anything that and um, that could have gone wrong, pretty much, much did. And we still had some. The great thing was we're not far off in, in to, to turn it around because we lost, except for one game against the Strikers in Adelaide where we got beaten convincingly. We were really close in all other games. And for a team that lost eleven games out of fourteen, our net run rate was higher than two of the teams finished fourth and fifth. So. It just shows us that we weren't too far away, but mm. at the same time, I was quite relaxed to start, and then when the losses were building up, you start to get a little bit edgy, and um, you try to keep everything pretty constant uh, and consistent without making too many changes, but uh, at some point, you do need to make some changes with your team, which changes the way you go about things a little bit, but the great thing in our group was our camaraderie was great throughout, which sometimes doesn't happen when you're, um, when you're losing like that, so... Mm. Um, and I think it's because everyone knew how close we were and we weren't that far off, but we just didn't probably have the match winners that the Renegades had in the previous year. We had a lot of batters batting well in terms of numbers, making 40s, 50s, but not getting the 70-plus scores to win us games, mm. and um, and our bowling numbers were just down. Um, we had we had to replace those Pakistan guys, and, and then the guys probably bowling a bit out of their position, bowling up in power play or the death, for example, where they're not normally their strength mm. um, but they're the personnel we had had to work with and uh, everyone everyone worked really hard uh, trained well worked hard at their game mm. to try and adapt but mm. we started from a long way back and it was hard to catch up 
people probably who um, watch the Big Bash and, and love it and but don't know the ins and outs of it as well probably don't realise how every bowler has a role and some bowlers might be better at the at, up front with two out and not so good at the death and you can't just say, all right, you bowl the second over, you bowl the seventh. Everyone has a specific sort yeah. of role, don't they? Yeah, and that's and that's where the Perth Scorchers are so good. Like, the Perth Scorchers, the best way to describe them during that period when we won those titles was they were predictably predictable, which, mm. which sounds funny, but they were because you could have... Opposition teams could have planned because they would have known every bowler pretty much bowling from over 1 to 20 who was going to bowl which over. Because it was almost the same all the time. With When Adam Vosier was captain or when I captain when he was away, um, we make a few change, different changes here and there. But it was almost the same. But as long as you execute, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Teams could have planned, but um, if you execute your skills, then it doesn't matter. So that was the, that's going to be the key uh, for us planning going forward. And, and we've restarted that planning now guys we're looking to recruit and how we're going to find you know 20 overs of quality bowling um with variety next season so there's no point having four amazing fast like um new ball bowlers yeah you really need two great new ball bowlers or, or and then guys two good death bowls sort of things so, and people may may not realize how much planning and thought yeah. goes into all of that and it's the same with um batters so you might not you don't want to have four opening batters in your team mm. because they're not Specialising in batting through the middle against quality spin and mm. uh, and that as well. So that's why, like Marcus Harris, for example, we left him out the first three or four games because we had Finch, Sean Marsh, Sam Harper, who um, had performed really well in previous years in that. So we felt um, we gave Bo Webster a chance to cement a spot in the middle order, and he had a fantastic tournament. Mm. So um, that they're the decisions you make at the time, and you got to look look into and plan for. Yeah. Now you spoke about the camaraderie of the group, even when things weren't going well. You've won titles, you've won trophies with the Scorchers, a very very successful side in in, in Gloucester. Um, what makes and it sounds like the fact that they were able to, or your Renegades boys were able to stay together, even though the results weren't going away. What do you think makes a good culture or a good environment? Yeah, I think each team's different. So for the Renegades, for example, it was guys coming from different states and all staying in sort of the same hotel, mixing really well together. You had some Victorian guys there as well. Uh, so socially it was a really uh, strong team. With the other way of looking at it, at the Scorchers, almost everyone was from Perth. So you're with each other 12 months of the year, so everyone got along really well. Knew each other Every, inside. Yeah, out. and everyone socialised. Um, everyone, you know, lived within 30 minutes of each other. Perth is in a huge town as well. So you, you, you'd meet at the same places for, you know, coffee or or a beer after a game. or um, So uh, there were two different setups, but equally equally as good. So mm. in terms of building good culture, I just think it's about guys really caring for each, each other. It's the same as leadership. I think the, the best leaders are the ones who, it's very simple, lead by example and show genuine um, care for their, their teammates or, or if you're a coach for your, the players underneath you. So mm. um, if you're doing that as a leader, then... Uh, then you're going to be a strong leader going forward without complicating it too yeah. much. And, yeah, so culture-wise, I think it's the same. If you show genuine care for your teammates and, um, and, and the staff and showing them respect, then I think um, it, it leads to a really good culture. So do you think, is that what you try and sort of do in terms of your coaching? Is that the most important aspect of coaching, do you think? Caring about the people? Oh, definitely. If, if you show individuals that you care about them, their games and you want to make them better, and also care about them off the field. That, that's the key, I, I believe, to building strong relationships. In Big Bash, again, you come in for two months, so you have a, a small impact there. Um, someone who coaches uh, both, for example, Adam Voges in, in Perth, where he works with the team, a lot of the guys, 12 months of the year, he can have a bigger impact because he works over a long period of time. The Big Bash is so frantic, in particular this year, with games condensed. Uh, you don't get a lot of time for that. You do as much as you can, but... When you're during a shield game and when things are a little bit more relaxed, for example, and um, you've got a bit more time off in between games, that's the key, I think, to coaching is building those strong relationships with players. And that's probably my strength as a coach. So um, I didn't probably get to show all of it in a, in a T20 setup coming in two weeks before the tournament, mm. still getting to know a lot of the guys, mm. um, where I'm hoping down the track if I get to coach you know, a, a state setup um, along with a big bash team as well then you've got that opportunity to really build those strong relationships with the players. Mm. 
you spoke earlier about in your own game, um, right up until the end, you were tinkering, you were trying things, you were learning, you were trying to get better. How are you doing that as a coach now? Do you have mentors? Do you have people you speak to? How are you upskilling yourself and how are you to going from a player to a coach and trying to sort of develop your coaching? Yeah, the review process for this Renegades, oh, this Big Bash has been really good for me. Uh, I, I got to write a performance review and present it to the board do individual reports for the players and, and, and send it to them as well in their home states. So that's been good for me in, um, in those learnings, working out uh, some things that we need to do better in, in future years and, and probably having a you know plan A. We, I reckon we had a plan A, plan B, probably even a plan C, yeah. but you need to have a plan D, F in T20 cricket as well. Yeah. We've, as we saw this year, hopefully down the track we won't have to because we won't have injuries, we won't have guys overseas guys you know not not rocking up down the track so um but you certainly make have a lot of learnings from doing those reviews and and working out what strategies are going to work uh for us as a renegades group going forward whether that's personnel whether that's list one of my key learnings is a list in t20 cricket is so important because depth and backup for certain positions it can't just be you know have depth have you know four batters as backup and you don't have a, a, a spinner or you don't have a, a quality quick who can come in and bowl variety as well. So that's a, the key is to really work on our list and there's uh, restrictions with salary cap and that's what I'm working through now. So as a Renegades coach this time around, that just the season just been, I had no control of the list obviously coming in a couple of weeks before. So that's certainly um, if I'm um, able to do this job for another uh, few years hopefully, then I can get that control over the players and personnel and just make sure that we um, build a really strong list going forward. Yeah. Now you've played with and against and seen some of the world's best players. You've mentioned you played against Ponting and all these great players. What's some common traits you've seen in the world's best players? Just their belief. Um, they go out there and, and, and are fearless and talking, you know, bowlers, whether it's a, you know, a Rashid Khan, if he gets hit for a six or four, he doesn't care because the next ball... He believes he can get the guy out and then turn the game. Same, same with the bat. Uh, guys playing fearless uh, cricket. I think the what, what I admire with a lot of the guys who are, are the best T20 batters in the world. If they get out, they don't dwell on it and they just they know their skills so good that next time they'll come off and they're going to make mistakes. As all, all the all the boys and girls watching as well, you make mistakes in cricket. You play a full season, you're probably happy. You know, four or five days out of your whole season because as a batter you get a hundred. Yeah. You want to make one hundred and fifty. You don't yeah. want to get out. So that's certainly. Um, or, or there's only a few days in the year where you come off really satisfied, mm. and which is uh, a bit weird in a, in a sport. Yeah. Um, so, but these guys they just put it away really quickly and then they move on to the next game. Yep. My skills, my um, attitude is going to be good enough, and I'll um, take a ga- game away from the opposition next game. So. Mm. Um, that's probably the main trait that I've seen all the best players. Yeah, it's funny you say that. I was in the Hussey podcast I was listening to yesterday. He spoke about how he spoke to Shane Warne and he asked him how many good days compared to bad days have you had and this is the greatest spinner of all time and Warne, he thought about it and said 51% good, 49% bad and that's yeah. across his career. So that gives some perspective That and everyone says the old cliche is true that you, you're going to have more sort of bad days than good days and I, I really sort of noticed what you were saying there when, when David Warner had a series um, might, I can't remember where it was might have been a test series in India didn't score any runs and he was saying and they, he was in front of the media and he said they said oh what, how are you feeling what's going on he goes oh it's alright I'll get runs tomorrow he didn't get runs the next game but then he went to the IPO and got the most runs the orange captain in the IPO yeah. and it just the, like you say the belief that they'll get it done the next innings yeah. allows them to not dwell on it which yeah. is which is so big for young players and that percentage you said about Warney that I don't reckon many other players would say that high as no. well. He's obviously extremely confident in his own ability. But, you know, if that question was asked to Mike Hussey, and he's also extremely confident, he's an unbelievable cricketer, but most cricketers would probably say a lot less than 51%. Absolutely. So it's interesting to, to hear that, how confident Warren he was. Yeah. Now, just before we wrap up, who was the hardest opponent you played against? Oh, definitely in recent times... Uh, Definitely Rashid Khan as a T20 bowler. Just the pace he bowls with, he can spin it both ways. That was probably a weakness of mine uh, and it was playing quality spin um, in T20 cricket. I could I could um, 
rotate them, but I probably wasn't strong enough in, in finding boundary options off them. And if I had my time again, you know, 10, 10, 15 years ago, I would have worked on my sweep a lot more. I was strong hitting down the ground like over the top, but I wish I would have worked on my sweep because I think in T20 cricket or all formats, if you can play the sweep well, it's going to be really important. Yeah. Especially now in one day cricket with only four guys out the out. Uh, so that's probably one thing. And when I first started, I found Michael Kasparitz in Shield Cricket really tough because yeah. he came um, really strong, strong guy, bustled in, and then he just bowled these beautiful outswingers and then bowled one that sort of just went straight through. And I don't know if he meant it or not. I'm sure he did because he was so skillful, but he was just extremely difficult because he, he didn't know if the, they were both balls looked exactly the same, the same angle to first slip or second slip. One would swing away and the other one would come in. So yes, he was a genius. No clues. Yeah, genius. I'm glad you said um, quality spin you struggled against because we played a 2020 against each other last year in Perth <laughs> and you didn't struggle against my spinners. You took, took me down <laughs> a few times. <laughs> now, what's, um, what's next for you? Um, hopefully continue to do with, uh, with the Renegades. Um, so I've got a, actually a, a review tomorrow with the board, so hopefully that goes well. And... Um, I can keep doing that for, for the future years to come. I'd love to coach full-time and and move into into that scene, so hopefully opportunities will come up, uh, maybe within a state system in, in Australia or uh, potentially some jobs over in, in England in county cricket or something like that. So, yeah, um, yeah it'd be nice to stay in, in Australia with my family based here, but um, it's more about just finding work 12 months of the year now yeah. because if you're, you're coaching Big Bash for two months, the other 10 months you've got to fill in from a uh, you know from a mental perspective to keep busy and also financially to keep mm. um, you know running. Yeah, I've got a family with three kids as well, so um, working through all that out now in the next few weeks and hopefully some opportunities come up. Yeah, well, best of luck, and I'm, I'm sure there'll be many many sides out there who would um, sort of kill for your services with your experience and you as a bloke. Now, final two questions we ask everyone on this podcast is yep. why did you play cricket? Uh, I played it one because I loved it. Um, but I love the competitive side of it and probably I love the competition. And if I'm honest, the, the thing I'm missing from playing is just that competitive streak. I get it a little bit with coaching, which is, which is really good and um, probably one of the main reasons I went into coaching because I felt like I needed that competitive streak. Um, so, yes, I loved it, but I love the competition as well. Yeah, and final question, what's your definition of success? Um individually getting the best out of yourself no, no doubt um, but winning like winnings uh, winning in, in a group and I've been lucky enough to do it with a few different groups it's the, it's the best feeling you get because you get to share that experience with you know 11 of your 10 of your other teammates or you know if there's a squad of 20 and the coaching staff and you never lose that so um, when you get an opportunity to play in a good team and, and to win a title uh, and that can be, you know, that can be under twelve. I remember playing an under twelve premiership, under fourteen premiership, uh, and then lucky enough to play some at senior level. So those experiences are things you never forget. Yeah, awesome. Well, that's been a fantastic, fascinating hour and a bit. Maxi, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks very much. No yes. doubt the viewers and, and um, listeners have got so much value out of that, um, and we wish you all the best for your future. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Well, legends, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Michael Klinger. I'm fortunate to have played against him a couple of times, so it was awesome to hear more about his journey. I really enjoyed his honesty that he didn't quite become consistent until he was 28, and if he'd put the numbers up that he did from then on when he was younger, he would have probably played a lot more for Australia. What about how he captained South Australia two titles after they hadn't won a title in 20 years and then lost the captaincy? I loved hearing how Justin Langer called him about moving across the WA and said there was no pressure on making runs, just be good around the group. And if he hadn't been told in his end of season review that he wasn't in the plans for four day cricket, despite making a double hundred a couple of games earlier, he may never have moved across the WA. If you enjoyed this episode or found it valuable, I'd love if you could share it with one or more people who you think could also benefit from it. And please send me a message at, at skulls 5 on Instagram if you enjoyed it. That's it for today's episode. If you're enjoying this podcast, I'd love it if you could please take 60 to 90 seconds to leave a review as it helps us move up the rankings and get heard by more people. Thanks a lot for listening. Now it's time to go out and get it done, legends.